The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we work every single week for decades now to try and make sure you have the latest in information and inspiration to start or grow your own real estate investing business. So today is kind of open mic day here on Real Life Real Estate. It's a question and answer week, which for many years we did on the last Wednesday of every month, but moved it to the first uh, Wednesday of every month a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I guess. And uh, hopefully that hasn't confused everybody because question and answer week depends on you. It depends on you having to have questions, you know, like stuff about real estate, whether it's managing it or financing it or rehabbing it even, IRAs, uh, finding deals, wholesaling, rentals, whatever your question may be, uh, you can send it in today and assuming it gets in before that magic moment on the clock when I realize there's time, no more time for questions. Uh, I will be happy to try and give it my best shot, answer-wise. Our numbers here in the studio are 877-772-9658. I said numbers. I'd say, you know, I don't know. That's 10 numbers. I'm just going to, I'm just going to give you that one. There's another one too, but I hate to confuse things by throwing two phone numbers out there when one is plenty. 877-772-9658. That's my digits. 877-772-9658. You can also send them via email to askvina at gmail.com. And in fact, you can do that last thing 24 seven because there are times when we don't have quite enough questions to fill up the whole program. And then I can go into the archives and look at what folks have asked over the prior month. And I'm always grateful for your questions at askvina at gmail.com. Uh, while we're waiting to hook up Valerie on line one, uh, just some quick business. The Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meets tomorrow night in person at the Holiday Inn out in Westchester. It's a really good meeting if you have ever been interested in the process of bidding at foreclosure auctions in Ohio. We actually have Sergeant Rick Snow from the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office there to talk about the rules and when you have to pay and when you get possession and the pros and the cons and how much due diligence you get to do beforehand. And with a probable jump in the number of 
properties going to foreclosure sale over the next few months, thanks to the end of the foreclosure moratorium. We're likely to see bunches more of those. So if you're in the Cincinnati area and you would like to attend that meeting, go to CincinnatiRIA.com. That's CincinnatiREIA.com. You can pre-register and let us know you're coming. The early meeting at 6 o'clock, by the way, is about how to exchange stuff that's not money for what you want. So exchanging your time for mentoring or your expertise for pieces of deals, things like that. And if you really just want to come straight from work, 5 o'clock is networking hour with a free light dinner for all attendees. Again, that's CincinnatiRIA.com. All right, let's go to the phones and talk to Valerie on line one. Valerie, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Thank you. Thank you. I just had a quick question for you. Um, I was talking to a seller uh, selling a house for two seventy five and uh, two seventy five, and my fellow investor heard me talking to the seller, said, hey, I used to live in that area. Uh, I can buy that deal. Mm-hmm. Um and he said, you know, I'll write up owner, an owner finance offer because the seller had said they would even consider owner finance. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the fellow investor offered me $5,000 if the deal closes. I kind of expected like ten. Am I being greedy or is this fellow investor being cheap? After all, the deal is $275,000. Okay, so that was the purchase price. What is the property actually worth? Like if it was fixed it's up, what's it worth? worth like two. Um, a little over three, I believe, as if I recall correctly, like three ten. So per, that it, the purchase price was pretty close to the after repaired value, right, of the property. Right. And did it need any work? Did it need any touch ups? Yeah, or? it needed about uh, it needed about twenty thousand of work, but the seller went down the twenty. They were originally asking two ninety five, so they did accommodate. Okay, uh, so, allow for that work. So, for, first of all, I would be remiss. If I did not tell you that uh, the Ohio Division of Real Estate f- has, has expressed opinions from time to time along the lines of people who don't have real estate licenses are not allowed to, quote, accept money for what we would call a referral fee, right, in, a, in, the, in, the, in the agent business. That's called a referral fee if I refer a uh, Listing to another agent, they would generally pay me some percentage of whatever the commission was. And the division of real estate has—I uh, don't think they've made—they haven't made like a big deal out of it. I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't—I haven't seen them prosecute anybody, but I don't follow every uh, bit of right. that. But in theory, they would want me to say that uh, if you don't have a real estate license, you're not supposed to accept finder's fees. Putting that aside, mm-hmm. let's think about this deal. The purchase price was two seventy five. You said it needed twenty five in repairs, and then it well, went... it started out at two. It started out at uh, two ninety five. Right. Uh, the seller went down for the twenty thousand for the twenty thousand in repairs. Right. But, but the purchase price was two seventy five. That's what the investor. Paid. Right. Exactly. Okay. That's the agreed upon price. And there was a twenty five thousand dollar, you know, an updating cost, and then and right. then the house is only worth three hundred, three hundred five, three ten, something like that. Right. Exactly. Okay. So the amount that the investor offered you was actually a a huge percentage of the current equity in the property. Okay. Right? Okay. I mean if I if I if I buy a house for three hundred and it's worth three ten and, and I and I sell it, which I doubt that this investor did, 
um, I'm actually going to lose money because by the time I pay the transfer taxes and the closing costs and if I have to pay a realtor or all that sort of stuff, I'm actually going to lose money. I mean, there was no equity in that deal. What made it work for that investor was the fact that there was seller financing. I'm sure he's going to hold on to it for cash flow, but it's going to be a while before, right, the, exactly. before the property's worth much more than what it's worth right now. And with the, the cash flow, you know, what's that? By the time he's paid the taxes, the insurance, the seller held mortgage, the maintenance, the you know, he's put twenty five thousand extra dollars into it. He's got to get a return on that. Um, okay. I, I actually, I, I think that the, from my perspective, that was a pretty generous. Okay, because it's more. I was viewing it as more of a joint venture deal. Well, are you are you putting in some of the money? Are you putting in some? No, of the, no. Okay, I'm just bringing the the seller. Right. So it was it was basically just it was like a referral. Like a referral. You found okay. you found the deal. He knew what to do with it. Right. Right. That that's the, true. That was the situation. That's true. Now, if I had to own or finance it, I couldn't do it at this time. That's true. Now, Valerie, I want you to I want you to think about something because there might be a. Um, a, a, a very important piece of the big real estate investing game that you haven't thought of yet. Okay. Uh-huh. And that is, it's about relationships. It's a, I mean, this, this is a person who obviously knows how to do owner finance deals because he made it happen. Right. Would you like to know how to do owner finance deals? I would. I'm, I've been studying them. <laughs> okay. So, the the piece of this that you maybe can still go back and do, right? But that that I think you missed the first time is the learning that you could have gotten from this guy. Yeah. If you had, I got you. I hear you. if you had said, "I'll take your five thousand dollars, and I want you to walk me through how you're doing this." You know, just sit sit down with me and explain why you offered what you offered, why you offered the payments you offered, what the structure of this deal is. Um, in fact, let me let me really challenge you and say, if you had said, I'll take twenty five hundred if you'll walk me through how this deal works, give me copies of the paperwork, you know, they could be in blank. I just want to know what the paperwork is like and help me through my next deal, I'll take twenty five hundred. Okay, even more valuable. Yes, because because it's very hard to buy that kind of knowledge. Right. Like you can't just go on Google and be like, "Oh, how do I get some experienced uh, owner finance expert to walk me through a deal?" The answer is there's no price that you can pay for that, right? Right. So, That's true. So so get, giving up kind of the immediacy of $5,000 versus $2,500 for the relationship with this person ongoing might have been the better deal for you because how many, how many profitable deals could this guy walk you through or potentially partner with you on in the future? Or if, if, if he knew who you were and appreciated you. And trust me, if you just said, I'll take half that if you'll do this for me, he never would have forgotten you after that. He would have been like, now that's a go-getter right there. Okay. Okay, that answers my question. Thanks a lot, Venus. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for the Uh call and the great question. 
Uh, we need to take a quick break. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. And um, you got questions? You can call them in like Valerie just did, 877-772-9658. Or you can send them to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Uh, you can come at me with any legitimate real estate questions you have at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. This is kind of the week that we just sort of pick up all those random questions that guests didn't answer during the rest of the month. And um, I don't know. I think everybody learns from other people's questions. A uh, question from Hez, our favorite West Coast Cincinnati REA member. <laughs> he lives in uh, Washington and uh, has been a member since, I don't know, about April of 2020. He attends lots of meetings and has to get up at 6 a.m. to attend the Friday morning haves and wants and prop swap meeting and is almost always there. Hey, Hez. Uh, Hez's question is, what are the pros and cons of month-to-month renting versus using leases of 6 or 12 months? Um, you know, that's something that deserves more thought than I think a lot of housing providers give it. A lot of housing providers are um, very into signing one-year or even two-year leases, because they they figure you know that way i it's it's settled i know i've got a tenant for the next one to two years and the reality is if a resident needs to move you know if they get a job someplace else or they a couple splits up or they have twins or what they're they're going to move they're going to break the lease right and the, the courts are not going to let you charge a resident who signed a lease in January for a year and then moved in February for the other 11 months worth of rent. I, people seem to think that, you know, if you sign if you signed a year lease and you have to pay the whole year no matter what. Uh, here in our county, you can collect reasonable lost rent, but reasonable means as long as it would take you to go in and clean it out and, you know, depending on how long they were there, maybe have to repaint it or something like that and get it on the market and get it rented. And you're not going to get, especially not right now, you're not going to get more than one to two months rent as a judgment against that tenant. Um, you know, maybe if the market was a lot slower than it was, you might be able to say, I, you know, three months plus, I, you know, I had to repaint or whatever. But the, you know, the security deposit normally covers part of that. And it, it's just not, it, it's not the case that just because we signed a two-year lease, it's over. I don't have to worry about this thing again for 24 months. Month to month is still a lease. It still has, you know, rules and you got to pay your rent and you can't run a chop shop in my garage and stuff like that. But it gives you and the resident flexibility to move on if the relationship's not working out. And um, there's still like, there's still notice that has to be given. It's not like you can say on June 29th that you got to be out on July 1st. There's still legal notice in your state 
that has that says owner wants possession and it can be anywhere from 30 days to man i don't know what it is out in washington they got some interesting rules out there in washington about things like you can't uh you can't actually evict people from september to february okay that's not washington that's seattle but you need to check your own state law I know a lot of housing providers and and uh, managers who prefer the month to month thing because they say, well, a it's it's more realistic. If the tenants are going to move, they're going to move. It doesn't help us to have this lengthy lease. Uh, they still have to give us thirty days notice, so we've got time to figure out what needs to be done before they're out, and it allows us to, again, move on if the business relationship isn't working out. So that's the answer to your question in general. Now let's talk about in specific what happened during our last period of hyperinflation in the late 1970s. What happened with rents? What happened with um, the cost of owning and maintaining a rental property? The answer was they both went up very, very quickly. Like folks who were adults during that time and, you know, went grocery shopping will remember that you go into the grocery store one week and coffee was a dollar and you'd go in the next week and it was a dollar seventy five. Like literally stuff was going up really, really fast. And one of the ways that housing providers dealt with that at that time was that they would only sign leases for a month or for six months so that they had the ability to raise the rents to match the increase in what it was costing to heat the apartment where they paid the heat or what it was costing to have maintenance done or what it was costing for materials. So this is a particularly important thing to be thinking about right now. Do you want to do you want to be signing year long leases or do you want to be signing month to month leases? Now, most most small housing providers, most people who own single family homes are not obsessed with making sure they're getting the absolute top market rent all the time. In fact, I, I love it that you see these statistics that say rent went up 37 percent over the last two years in the United States or in such and such a city. And they never tell you how they got to that number. They never tell you, okay, does that include the new class A apartments that came online, which is most of the new housing that's coming online for renters. It's those, you know, 700 square foot apartments that in Cincinnati would cost you 2000 to 2500 a month, which is a lot of rent for an apartment in Cincinnati. And does it include people who are already in a rental so, so in other words, are we looking at the rents of things that are going on the market or are we looking at what everybody is paying for rent? Because I can tell you that neither mine nor any housing provider I know has raised the rent on their tenants 37% in the past two years. There's, there's a lot of value to having a resident who is taking good care of property, paying on time, not causing drama with the neighbors, all of that sort of stuff. And yeah, they've gotten, small rent raises but nothing like 37%. So I look at those figures and I and I think are they just tracking like what's showing up online as available rental properties and saying, "Oh my gosh, look how much more expensive these are." Yes, if a if a tenant moves out of one of my houses and I'm putting it back up on the market, I'm going to put it up 
at market rent or pretty close to it. But that doesn't mean that that prior tenant was paying, quote, market rent. So I think those numbers are very skewed. I know I just went off on a total tangent from the question you actually asked, but I don't know. I thought it was an important tangent. So, um, you know, everybody does it. Everybody does the lease thing differently. You can decide whether you're more comfortable with a month to month or with a longer term lease. But from a practical standpoint, it it really just doesn't matter that much. And, you know, the lease isn't isn't 100 percent what drives the relationship. That's what kind of drives the rules. But, uh, you know, sit, if you want to do month to month leases, sit down with your applicants and say, I do month to month leases here's why I want you to be able to move. If you don't like it, I want, I want to be able to ask for possession of the property. If it turns out this doesn't work out, but if it does work out, if you're good, you take care of my house, you make your payments. I want you to stay there until you die. And then I want your children to take over your lease. I want you there forever and ever. This isn't a reflection on how long I want you to stay. It's just the way we do things. So thank you for your question, Hez. I appreciate that a lot. A question from Dave. Let's see. Uh, Seller finance purchases based on a property needing repairs of 20% of the purchase price. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and translate that into fake numbers. Dave, I'm going to say it's a $200,000 house. And it needs 40000 in work to make it worth 200000 That would be 20% of the after-repaired value of the house. What is the highest and best return structure for a return on your money? Wow. Um that is, but that's a, that's one of those it depends kinds of questions, David. Uh, I would, I would have to know more about the deal than that. For instance, what are you going to do with the house when the repairs are done? Are you going to rent it? Are you going to lease option it? Are you going to sell it with owner financing? I would also like to know what the expenses on that property were. I was talking to somebody a little bit earlier about a property in Florida, $400,000 property, 500 a month in taxes because they don't have income tax in Florida, so it's property taxes where they get you. And another $500 a month for insurance. Those are shocking numbers to me. We would not pay that in either taxes or insurance on a property here. So, So the structure of the owner financing would be different on a house that had $1,000 a month in taxes and insurance than one that had 500 a month in taxes and insurance if we were looking for the highest return. And then my other question would be, what do you consider return on your money? You're putting 40000 in. I get that in my fake deal that I made up. But do you consider return only cash on cash return? So if you put in 40,000 and you get you net 4,000 a year in cash flow, you've got a 10% return or do you also count mortgage pay down? Because if you negotiated let's say a 0% interest seller held loan 
And every payment you were making was going 100% toward paying down that loan. And so in year one, you got 4000 in cash flow, but you also got 4000 in equity because the loan had paid down by $4,000 because it was 0% interest. Would you consider that an $8,000 profit or would you consider that a $4,000 profit? I've had... I've had knockdown drag out fights with people about whether that 4000 in equity should be considered part of the return or not. I I consider it part of the return. And I now say I got a 20% return on that house this year between pay down and cash flow. So the return structure is going to be about the the overall numbers of the deal. In terms of the creative structure, is that best done through a lease option or an owner held uh, first mortgage or a subject to? Uh, they they can all mimic any return structure you want. At that point, it kind of becomes what's best for the seller, like what in his tax situation and his personal situation. How does that that best work? So. I hope I answered that it depends question thoroughly enough to help you out with whatever problem you are trying to solve. We need to take a quick break. It's question and answer week. Our number here in the studio. And by our, I'm not using the Royal We. I always feel like people don't know Mike's here. I think they think I like come here and like I run the whole, I run the board and I push the buttons on the phones. Mike and I can take your calls at 877-772-9658 or you can send your questions to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. And um, it's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. You can call in your questions at 877-772-9658 or you can... Send them via email. That that is askvina at gmail dot com. Uh, last week's show was about lease options versus subject twos. It was this this question that we just got asking about deal structuring that reminded me of this. And uh, lease options are probably the the least known of the creative finance structures where it comes to buying properties. Like lots of people at least vaguely know how to quote, sell a property on lease option, how to lease a property that you own to someone with an option to buy it and, and some of the ins and outs of that. But not too many people know about um, lease options for controlling properties. And in fact, a lot of folks, when you say, well, you know, you could just quote, buy it, and I'm putting that in quotations again because uh, it's not really buying it. It's really renting it with the right to buy it in the future. And there are some super good reasons to know how to do that. The the I said, I said uh, the, the actual structure that you use might just have to do more with the seller than with you. And it might have to do with the seller's tax situation. I've done a few lease option deals with sellers who they, they didn't like their rental anymore. They didn't really want it anymore. They didn't like dealing with the maintenance and management. 
but what they they didn't they weren't going to sell it because they had a complete it was a completely depreciated property. In other words, if they sold it, they would pay capital gains taxes on one hundred percent of whatever they sold it for. They had no more basis. And when I said, well, fine, I can take away the management, the maintenance, and you don't have to deal with the tenants anymore or any of the bills anymore by lease optioning it from you. And we'll just do a really long-term option so that by the time I exercise it, you'll be dead and your kids will have inherited it at a stepped-up basis and they won't pay any taxes either. And after they get their brains around that and go, wait, 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 I still get income because now you're paying me rent because you're the tenant, but I don't have to do anything else. And I say, yep, that's the way it works. They, they're like, where do I sign? You know, I don't have to pay taxes. Where do I sign? Now, eventually, they if if you buy the property, you, they, they will have to pay taxes at that point. But the whole goal is lock in the price for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years and uh, let the value build up while your purchase price does not. So that's something that that's a structure that more people should know about than actually do. And when we were talking with Wendy last week, she was talking primarily about selling uh, properties on lease option and then a little bit about buying pretty houses that way, too. Uh, Cincinnati Re is actually having a class about that on July 11th online or June 11th, excuse me, online. And if you go to CincinnatiRia.com, you can find out about that. It's about both sides of the lease option coin, how to how to control properties with lease options as the buyer and then also how to sell them on lease options. And it it's shaping up to be a pretty cool class. So let's go back to email here because uh, I don't have any callers on the line at 877-772-9658 and uh, see what folks have been asking over the last couple of weeks and today. Uh, here's a, a question from Chris. If a rental property is owned in an LLC, is small claims an option to collect the debt? Can an LLC garnish wages without going through the long, drawn-out, unproductive process of debt collection where I get to share 30 to 45% of any collections with the collector of said debt? I'm finding after the oh-so-slow eviction process, it's easy to rack up three months in back rent. Definitely an argument for collecting last month's rent up front, says Chris. So overdue rents are uh collected in a in different ways depending on your state okay so there's let me let me answer your question but first i need to preview that with you might be in a state where getting a judgment for any unpaid rent and or damages is just a part of the eviction process it's done through the eviction court usually as second or third cause on the eviction Right. I'm asking for possession of my property and I'm also asking for the following damages. And often that's that that second or third cause happens a month later because you don't necessarily know how much damage has been done or how much rent you've lost until the resident is completely gone and you've had a chance to review what you're getting back. And it's just it's just a matter of going back to court on the same case and saying, here's the list of things that I paid for. And then here's when I re-rented the property. And so here's my lost rent. And what you get is a judgment. In some places, that is, in fact, done through small claims court, which means you have to show up with proof that 
here's here's the invoices for the work I had to have done, the materials, the lost rent, and so on. And of course, the tenant has the chance to also show up in that case. They're not; it's not a one-sided thing where you just get to walk in and say they owe me this much money. The 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 former tenant is notified that there is a court date, and they have the chance in either kind of state to show up and say, uh, no, that was like that when I moved in and I've got pictures to prove it. So having said that, the first step in either case is always getting a judgment. The The, the small claims court or the eviction court doesn't say, uh, okay, we agree you're owed $3,000. Now, Mr. Ex-Tenant, pay up right now on the spot or we're throwing you into a 19th century debtor's prison, right? You, you get a judgment and then the collection process takes place on that judgment. And yes, if you are the owner of the property directly or your LLC owns the property, your LLC can file a wage garnishment to say, uh, hey, ex tenant's boss, I've tried to work this out with him, but uh, he owes me this money, so withhold whatever percentage of his paycheck. You can garnish bank accounts. You can place those judgments against uh, assets that they might own. Most people don't want to go through that part of the process, which is why they hire a debt collector to collect on the judgment after they have received it. And yes, that's where you're paying 30, 40, 50% of whatever is collected. But the good news is if they don't collect anything, you don't pay anything either. So that's kind of a judgment call for you. Do, do you want to go through that process of debt collection or do you want to place it with someone who's a professional in that regard and let them try and collect it? But yes, unless there's something in your state, and I don't know what state you're in, that is different, uh, you can go through that process yourself. Now, in some states, and I believe Ohio is one of them, your LLC will will have to be represented by an attorney throughout the entire eviction process, including that last step of getting the judgment and the garnishment. Thank you for your question, Chris. Uh, getting all kinds of just variety of questions today. Uh, Anne has a question. It says down payment at the top. And then it says, is it typical for a contractor to request a down payment for work? Example, a concrete wall costing $4,000, but they won't start without a $1,000 down payment. Well, um, it's, it's standard operating procedure for contractors to request down payments. And you can kind of understand why it is probably not unusual for contractors to complete a job and then not get paid for it. I know you would never do that, but I bet it happens to them. Also, in order to start your concrete wall, they have to go out and buy concretes and they have to maybe rent a mixer if they don't already own one. And there's, they've got to book that into the schedule, right? So you can understand why they do it. But just let me channel every renovator I know right now and say the flip side is it's extraordinarily common for you to put that $1,000 down payment down and then the contractor never shows up to do the job. And we've heard we've heard horror stories here on the show and at, at RIA and every place else about people putting much bigger amounts of money down 
like it's a hundred thousand dollar rehab job and the contractor says I need half of that up front and they pay it and they never see the contractor again and they call their attorney and say I want to sue them and the attorney says it's useless because these guys never have any money. They're basically judgment proof because they don't have any money. It's not it's not that you can't get the judgment, it's that you will never collect it. So what do you do when the contractor says I must have this up front? Well, Ask them why. If they say, well, we've got to buy materials, say, tell me what materials you want and I will have them delivered to the site and I will pay for them. And that should that should satisfy you. Right. And then I'll pay the rest at the end of the job. If they say, well, that's just our policy. We have to have down payments in order to book jobs. Say, well, let's let's talk about some alternative to that. I know you're worried that I don't have the money and I won't pay you. So how about if I escrow the money you're asking for and I'll escrow it with your attorney? You you tell me who to escrow it with. I'll put it up with them. And the escrow instructions will say that it's to be released to you when 60% of the job is complete. And that way, you know the money's there. I know that you won't get ahead of me in terms of how much money you've put up front versus how much work you've done. And that should make them happy maybe if they can if you can understand it but the the folks who like rehab houses for a living like the folks who buy houses and then hire contractors to rehab them if they put any money up front it's just the amount of materials and that's with a contractor they've already worked with and trust otherwise they like to buy the materials to get the contractor started and then pay them on a draw schedule you get done with 27% of the work and I'll pay you 25% of what we agreed to. That keeps the contractor from being in a position where they've been paid for 75% of the work, but they've only done 65% of it. And it's more profitable for them to go off and do another job than it is to finish yours. It is a really, it's unfortunate that the kind of the way the whole contracting world is set up, it puts the people who are getting the work done kind of at, at odds with the people who are doing it. We haven't, we haven't really come up with a great way to keep everybody honest in the whole situation and make sure that nobody loses a bunch of money or does a bunch of work and doesn't get paid for it. But that's kind of the way it's been for my whole life you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're going to take one more quick break. If you have any last minute questions, send them via email. Just put them in and type out askvina at gmail.com and hit send and we'll answer them after the break. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're almost at the end of this month's question and answer. We've got some good stuff planned for you for the rest of the month. Some some a show about uh, vacation rentals, how to invest in vacation rentals, and one about LLCs and what the best way to set those up are for your particular company. And uh, I don't know, it's going to be a good month. Got it all mostly planned out at this point. So, you know, keep listening. And don't forget that if you have to miss a show, you can always catch the uh, replay, let's call it the podcast at realliferealestate.com or thanks to the awesome Sarah it's now also on iTunes or whatever Apple calls their thing now I don't think they call it iTunes anymore and also Spotify Woohoo! we're on Spotify so we're working toward that thing about uh, wherever you get your podcasts but right now it's only 
three places. Realiferealestate.com, maybe the easiest one to go grab any of the past shows for the last 10 years. Um, got a follow-up from David who had asked the question about the bestseller finance structure. If the purchase price was 200000 and the after-repaired value was two eighty, and the mortgage was six fifty a month, and the property rented for fourteen hundred a month, and the taxes were one fifty a month. You know, you left out insurance there. Then, what is the best strategy? Okay, again, this is the kind of thing, David. Where if I was like consulting with you as a mentoring student, we would spend twenty minutes just laying out all of the pieces of the deal, because quick answer is you want the best rate of return on your cash invested, borrow the $40,000 for the repairs. Get the seller held financing for the 200. Borrow the other 40 or get a partner to put up the other 40 so that you had zero cash in it. And then it's going to cash. It looks like it's going to cash flow based on the $1,400 a month rent and the 650 a month first mortgage and the 150 a month in taxes. Any money you get out of that deal is a an infinite return. If you have no money in it, it's an infinite return. So if what you're what you're concerned about is what is my rate of return, the best way to get a high rate of return is borrow somebody else's money for that forty thousand dollars worth of work. If you're still asking like the structure for the seller finance deal, like is it a is it a owner held loan? Is it a um, lease option. I would say that because somebody's cash is going to have to go into this and whether it's yours or someone else's, it would be nice to have a title to the property. If I had to give you a quick answer under the gun, I would say the structure I would like to see here would be that that $650 mortgage payment is a 0% seller held first mortgage. And that you borrowed some or all of the $40,000 or, or again, partnered. You could, you don't have to borrow it and create a second payment. You could partner with somebody which doesn't create a second payment, but it does create now that you owe some of that cash flow to somebody else. That would be my favorite structure for something like that. Assuming that that owner held loan was fully amortizing. You got to make all the payments on it and the last payment paid it off it didn't have a balloon in a year because then it's not actually very useful and that it was long enough term that the property would still cash flow at least a little bit. You know, at, at some point, the if you say, I'm going to pay you $200,000 and I'm going to pay it to you over 100 months, that's $2,000 a month and your property will be in a negative cash flow situation. You can't do something like that. So I hope that helps. David, and thanks for the follow-up. I probably have time for one more question because Mike's holding up three fingers, which means three minutes left in the show. Um, this is a question to uh, that that had to do with a show that we did probably a couple of months ago with um, uh, Lindsay. Jensen about master leasing, which by the way is one of the topics at the 2022 OREA National Real Estate Summit that's coming up in November. We got David Tillman there talking about master leasing for 
half a day, if that's something that interests you. Uh, this one is from Victor. He says, does Lindsay invest outside of her geographic area, and has she run across any state or local issues that have to be overcome when she master leases? And I can I can speak for Lindsay and say that she keeps all of her master lease properties in the same geographic area for the same reason that most housing providers like to have their properties in the same area, which is they are easier to understand and watch over and drive by and go over there if there's a problem than it is when they're scattered all around the United States. Uh, uh, Lindsay's a, a hands-on manager. You know, she doesn't she doesn't leave her the management of her properties entirely up to other people. So, you know, if you were going to do that with master leases, keeping all of your properties in the same area would be a good idea. The state and local issues in regards to master leasing, where what you're doing is you are you're just you're you're leasing a rental property from the owner and then releasing it releasing it, leasing it, subleasing it to somebody else. Um, those, I don't know of any area where those are particularly uh, governed, like like where there's a specific law about what happens in that relationship. It's It's kind of a more advanced strategy that, I mean, anybody can do it, but a lot of people don't understand it. And so I have never seen any legislation about that whatsoever, Victor, in any state. So uh, maybe you should go try it. Thanks for your questions, and thanks to everybody who shared questions today. Again, you can send those in 24-7-365 anytime you think of one. I really appreciate that. Askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.